Good morning. As Mr. Howard said, it is a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to bring the word uh, to this church that has been my home for the past five years. I look out here and I see a lot of college students. It brings me a lot of joy because I was sitting exactly where we all are five years ago, which is crazy to think. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is not our main text this morning, but it will help prepare us for our passage in 2 Peter. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to read the first ten verses from here. And listen and hear what the Lord spoke hundreds of years ago to his prophet Ezekiel. Starting at the beginning. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but since the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Centuries ago, we see here that the Lord hated, hated false teachers. People who fed the sheep of God wrongly, and the same is true today. I'll be preaching um, my eighth sermon through the book of Second Peter. If you would like to catch up with them, please find them online at our website. Um, but Peter's goal in this book is singular. His goal is to help Christians make your calling and election in Christ sure. And yet he does this in two different ways. In chapter 1, he does it by telling us what to do, how to follow Christ positively. And then in chapter 2, he tells us what not to do by showing us who the false teachers are and who we should not follow. So we're going to see here that Peter's being a good pastor, particularly by showing the Lord's disdain for false teachers and the harm that comes when God's word is mishandled. He even started off chapter 2 with these words. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Friends, this, this is a hard passage this morning. have got to be honest. Uh, it's not, it was difficult to prepare for, and yet we have to study things like this. Let me give you three reasons why you have to study hard passages like this in 2 Peter 2. Number one, it's God's word. 
It's food for our souls. It doesn't matter how hard it is. Number two, we need to recognize the features of false teachers. We have to. In particular, as we're going to see today, we need to recognize their spiritual blindness and their moral corruption so that we can flee from them but also avoid those same tendencies in our lives. And lastly, difficult passages like this about the evil in the world teach us to love our good shepherd. No doubt many here in this room have been burned by the church at some point in your life, maybe even this one. And especially as of late, I've noticed there is a huge temptation to endlessly focus on the negatives that we see in the world rather than let it guide us to the goodness of God. A lot like a child who has a bad father struggles to see God as a, as a loving father. It's the same way with the church sometimes. And yet, we can't let the ugliness of Jesus' bride keep us from contemplating that he's our good shepherd. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd give us guidance, give us discernment, give us patience in this text this morning. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus even as we seem to study the opposite. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts to receive the food of your word this morning. And I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. We will be in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Please turn there in your Bibles. Um, and in verses 10b through 13, we will read about their spiritual blindness of false teachers. And in the last three verses, we will see their moral corruption. I'll read these first three verses first. It says, Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This Thursday, I had the pleasure of going to a, a men's Bible study in the, the evening. We were walking through the book of John. And we are in John chapter 9, uh, the passage where Christ opens the eyes of a blind man. And, and the end of that passage in particular is what struck me. Because the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, they're like, Do you, are you saying we're blind like this man was? And Jesus basically says, the man who you thought was blind was seeing the whole time. And you who thought you saw were actually blind the whole time. And essentially, this is Peter's first attack against false teachers. They are spiritually blind. They don't know what they're talking about when it comes to heavenly truths. Because Peter starts off, he says, they're bold and they're willful. This, it's, grammatically, it's kind of like a shout. So like insert an exclamation point there in your Bibles, if there isn't one. Peter calls these false teachers bold, audacious, self-willed, stubborn, basically type A people, kind of. Like you're really type A person. Personally, as I'm reading this, if, if, the, if this passage stopped right here, I feel like I'd have no hope, because I can be pretty stubborn. I can be pretty type A, just ask my wife. But the, these teachers are strong-willed, which can be an extraordinarily good attribute or an exceedingly dangerous one. 
Honestly, when I think of Paul, I think of somebody who's strong-willed. So it doesn't mean that the attribute is sinful. And often I think that biblical masculinity is, is often defined as simply being strong, willful, bold, active, and not passive. And those are not wrong in and of themselves. They're not. But they can be overglorified. Because all of those attributes without inward love mean nothing. We just sang this in the song. We sang, though I may speak with bravest fire and have the gift to all inspire and have not love, my words are vain, a sounding brass and hopeless gain. So even the, the greatest attribute or the greatest gift means absolutely nothing if it is not paired with the love of Christ and the soul. Peter goes on and says that these people, they, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, if you're like me, the first time you read that, you were like, what is going on here? What does this mean? Why is their boldness dangerous? Dangerous. Their, their boldness is, is dangerous because it makes their false theology all the more evident and all the more pervasive. So these glorious ones right here, literally this word is just glories. That, that's literally what it is. It means a, a weight or a heaviness or an importance surrounding these people. And if you're reading, depending on what version of your Bible you're reading, you're reading you'll see different translations treating this differently. Um, the ESV simply calls it glorious ones, which kind of leaves it open to interpretation, whereas the NASB says angelic majesties, which you can see they're inserting their commentary into the text. And we'll dive into that. Because there's a debate here. What, what is this glories? Who are these glories? Is it talking about God? Christ? Many have thought this to be referring to a, a government official. Um, and some, some people think that it's talking about angels or demons or even both. So there's a lot of debate here. Um, I, I think there, there are two options that are, that are viable. First, I think it could be a government position, like a king. I also think it could be an angelic being. I, I think it could be a government position because of how verse 10, the previous verse, kind of ends in the previous section. It says that these false teachers despise authority. They are, 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 are audacious in the fact that they do not submit. And we see this in church history. False teachers throughout the ages often have fought with governments. They, they take the freedom that scripture gives them as a license to be anarchists. And it's not true. Second, Peter also could be talking about angelic majesties here. Angelic beings, either angels or demons, and he discussed them earlier in chapter 2 as well. So I think both of those options are viable. But still, what does it mean? That doesn't answer the question, what does this verse mean? It means that these teachers put no stock in the spiritual powers that God has ordained, that they have created. They, as he says, do not tremble when they should. Because governments exist for a purpose. They are supposed to give a healthy fear to people. And in the same way, angelic beings, even demons, wield great power. And there should be a healthy respect of both. Peter moves forward and gives us the reason why these teachers do this. He says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before 
the Lord. And this is Peter's reason why these teachers should be more humble than they are. He's saying that angels, even though they're some of the strongest beings that God has created, glorious beings that reveal God's teachings throughout the whole Bible, even they know when it's their place and when it's not their place. Specifically, angels know that it is not their place to condemn demons. That is God's role, not theirs. Angels rightly understand that final judgment is God's alone and no other's. They watch their words. Um, this, this one verse is extraordinarily similar to Jude verse 9, which I'll read for us real quick. Jude is also talking about false teachers when he says, Yet in like manner these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Notice the similarity. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the book of Jude and 2 Peter are very similar. And you notice here, Jude references this story of the archangel Michael disputing over the body of Moses. We have no idea where this story came from. Somehow it was in the history of the Jews at that time, and I don't think he's treating it as scripture. But the message is clear, what he's saying. He's saying this, Michael, the archangel, seemed to have every right to rebuke Satan. And yet he showed humility and stepped back and said, the Lord rebuke you. He knew his place. It, it's kind, it would kind of like, be like this. Uh, I grew up in a big family. And so it was very common where older siblings would take upon themselves the authority of the parents, right? Usually only the dad or, or my mom could ground one of us, and yet I know there were very many times where I, I wanted to take that authority upon myself. Say, Callie or Clancy, you're grounded. I can't do that. All I can do is say, I hope mom and dad grounds you. That's kind of what's going on here. Siblings need to remember that they're just another sibling. They're not the parents. And... and what Peter is teaching here is angels need to re respect and remember their place as well. And so should false teachers. So should pastors. So what, what does this look like today? He's talking about blasphemy. What does it look like for a, a pastor to speak beyond his station? This is a difficult topic. Um, but here are some helpful definitions. I, I think blasphemy is to speak outside your station. To teach of things beyond your calling. To peer into the secret things of the Lord of which we don't know. One definition that has helped me is thinking about it this way. A pastor speaks outside of his station when he speaks in certainty in a matter in which he should be uncertain. Or speaks with uncertainty in a matter in which he should be certain. Let me give you four examples of this that I've heard of and seen in church life. Example number one. Imagine a pastor looking at someone who professes to be a Christian and saying something like this. You just did this sin again. I don't think you're saved or you're not saved. I know I've heard that story before. And this is evil. Only God can peer into the heart of a man, not a pastor. I think a pastor may infer, correct, and rebuke, but never assume that he knows what's going on in someone's soul. There, a pastor is very certain where he should be very uncertain. 
Secondly, uh, I've heard stories of this as well. Pastors or teachers parading their power over sin and temptation. Making it seem like by their own strength that they conquered X, Y, and Z sin. And here's the truth. when, When pastors boast in that way, they're not giving the power of sin its due. And they're not giving grace its due either. Because demons have power. Satan actually is the ruler of this world, according to Christ. And there should be a healthy fear of sin, a healthy fear of temptation. And once again, right there, pastors show certainty where they should be uncertain. Example number three, uh, when preachers preach only freedom, when all they say is, you're forgiven, so do whatever you want. And they forget that the scriptures teach, you're forgiven, so be holy. Worship the Lord with your body. They forget that God commands us to never use our freedom as a license to sin. And there, a preacher is pretty uncertain about holiness where he should be very certain. Lastly, the other end of the same spectrum is when pastors, this is ugly, but when pastors withhold the comfort of forgiveness from someone. And they say something like, you committed that sin last week. I really don't think that you're sorry for it. I don't think that the cross is covering you. That is a pastor speaking beyond his station. We can only see the outward man Not the inward man. In that instance, a teacher is being uncertain where they should be certain that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are a few examples. They're not all, but some. And this is Peter's call. He is saying preachers and teachers and pastors in the church have a massively high calling. And they will be held to a stricter judgment because of their station. I don't know if any of y'all have ever listened to a a preacher named Vody Bauckham, but he has one saying that I love. He says, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it, which I think is fantastic. And that's the job of a pastor. The job of a preacher is to deliver God's words that Christ may increase and he may decrease. Personally, um, as I pursue ordination in the Presbyterian church, this all, passages like this make me incredibly thankful for the Presbyterian style of church government. Because I remember when I was a college student, being a Christian studies major, thinking about the future of where I would be, and the idea of preaching in a church terrified me. It would wake me up in the middle of the night, and it still does sometimes. The worry of mishandling God's word makes my soul tremble. And I think that should be the case for every preacher. Why? Because of passages like this. I'm so thankful for all of the hoops, all of the examinations, all of the testings that I have to go through to become an ordained pastor. It it could take me three to four years to become ordained. Not only do I have to get a degree, but then I have to be examined both by committees and then publicly in front of the entire presbytery. It's scary, and and yet in a a world that idolizes, idolizes making it big when you're young, I'm so thankful for that. So thankful for these checks that humble me and other people. Yes, the process is slow, but it's biblical. Next, Peter likens such false teachers to beasts 
to animals, uh, which do not act according to reason, but only according to their nature. He says they are irrational animals, creatures of instinct. Now, animals don't act upon reason the same way that you and I do. They simply are trained. They respond to rewards and they respond to punishments. And if you're uncomfortable by this language of comparing a false teacher to an animal, this isn't new. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look out for the dogs, those who will come and attempt to mutilate the flesh. Such teachers know the truth about God, but they don't act upon it. It reminds me in our neighborhood, Sarah and I like to go on frequent walks in the evenings. And there's this one, one of our neighbors has a dog that never stops barking. Like 7.30 a.m. all the way to the end of the day. It just never stops barking. If anybody is within about a mile radius. And his barking doesn't change a thing. It'll sit there and bark, I think, until it dies, to be frank. And it doesn't change a thing. And false teachers are very similar. They call against the Lord. They teach wrongly. And nothing is going to change that. Such people, according to Peter, in the next phrase, are born to be caught and destroyed. Whew, this, this is hard language. What are we to make of this? Does this apply to us? Should, should we talk like this? These are the questions that I, I struggle with. I think we should try to think through things like this when we come to harsh language in the scriptures. From God's perspective and then from man's perspective. Because first of all, from, from the Lord's perspective, somebody who terrorizes his church is there for a purpose. And the Lord is sovereign through all of that. But from our perspectives, once again, we cannot see into the heart and soul of a man. We simply can't. So I, I think our call is that we, we need to show grace and charity for as long as possible. But also acknowledge that people like this exist because the Lord says they do. So should we use language like this? It's a tough struggle because on the one hand, Peter is a man who knew his Bible extraordinarily well. And he was apostle. And he lived with Christ. That being said, this is my personal opinion. I personally think that strong language such as this should be left to the elders and pastors of a church. It's my personal opinion. It's not simply every Christian's prerogative to decide who is and who is not a false teacher. Also notice that Peter isn't naming names here. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen elsewhere in the Bible. But I think there, there's a healthy hesitancy that we should have when we come to passages like this. We should admit that these people exist, who are born for destruction, and then let that humble us that we don't know. 1 John chapter 4 begins with this. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. To see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone into the world. Peter continues and says that they, are, they, they blaspheme about matters with which they are ignorant. S same as before. They are bold where they should be hesitant. Where they should tremble. Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6-7. He says, The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, false teachers, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. Not only that, but Peter says that they will be destroyed in their destruction. This, this is basically an idiom, which means they will reap what they have sown, and God will repay for what they have done. Paul says something very similar about false teachers in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, their end will correspond to their deeds, which is a promise from the Lord, which should, should give us comfort. That those people that terrorize God's church will be repaid by the Lord. And he, oh, he also goes on to say that they are suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. And when I was reading this, I couldn't get one phrase of Christ out of my mind when he says to the Pharisees, they have earned their reward in full. Basically saying this, false teachers desire the pleasures of this life. They desire the greatness that this world has to offer, and that's what they'll get. And that's the only thing they'll get. So what we see here as we're walking through this passage, we've got to zoom out. We have to see that Peter is saying these hard things because he's being a pastor. He's being a shepherd. And when we ask ourselves, why is he being so harsh? We need to remember that, that final scene in the book of John. When Jesus is talking to Peter... And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and what does he command Peter? He looks him in the eyes and says, feed my sheep. And yes, that means accurately teaching them God's words, but that at the same time also means defending them from those who want to destroy their souls. Both of those are wrapped up. Peter continues, he says these people revel in the daytime. And I think what he means by this is that sin usually happens in the dark, far away from sight because we're ashamed of it. These people aren't even ashamed. They're so bold that even in broad daylight, that causes them no fear. This word here for pleasure is where we get our word hedonism. Once again, they, they find all of their pleasure, all of their purpose in this life alone, which means that's all they will get. Peter also says that they are blots and blemishes. He's just going phrase by phrase by phrase by phrase. And the image here with blots and blemishes is, imagine a, a, a fresh white pair of pants that you just spilled spaghetti on. Honestly, that, not that I wear white pants, but that happens to me way too often where I spill on new things. It's awful. But that's the image that he has here. Because the bride of Christ is often described as being arrayed in white garments. And these people are the ones that make it spotted. Such stains will be cleansed when Christ returns. But an interesting thing I want to point out is that in the end of this book, Peter commands us to be the exact opposite. In, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. He says, Therefore, beloved, the church, since you are waiting for these, since you're waiting for Christ to return, be diligent to be found by Christ without spot or blemish. It's the two same words. So let us recognize where, when we read about these false teachers, you might be reading these things and think to yourself, well, I struggle with this, but I don't think I'm a false teacher. That's an okay thing to wrestle with. As we see our own sin and the attributes of these men, it should call us to repentance. Peter also says that they revel in their deceptions while they feast with you, which possibly is a re reference to the Lord's Supper which gives us an even further glimpse to the intimacy 
of these false teachers. They, they don't come from outside of the church. They come from inside the church. Much like what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward are ravenous wolves. They're imposters who are trying to play as being shepherds. And friends, many a church has been hurt by the mentality of thinking that could never happen here. This, this, this problem, this, this scandal, that could never happen here. We're way too good. Actually, I would say the op- there's wisdom in the opposite. There's a lot of wisdom in not underestimating either our sin or the power of Satan and thinking, really, apart from God's grace, anything could happen here. So when we apply texts like this to our lives, there is a careful balance that comes. Because on the one hand, you could be terrified and see false teachers everywhere. And on the other hand, you could completely ignore passages like this because they're hard. And I think there's a careful balance to be found. Because Jesus teaches that in his kingdom now, the wheats and the tares grow together. And that is God's will. That is God's plan. God is not only sovereign over the church's end, but he's also sovereign through the entire process. Here are three quick things that I think that we as a church can work on to help protect ourselves. First of all, preach the gospel. Love sound preaching. Encourage Dr. Campbell as your pastor. He needs it. We all need it. But encourage strong teaching because God's word changes hearts. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Number two, church discipline. My wife and I have been reading through the book of Proverbs lately, and it is astounding how often we come to a proverb that says something like this. The wise man heeds correction, but the fool is enraged by rebuke. I pray that we as a church would be humble when corrected. That when people bring to us our wrongs or our sins, that our first response would be one of humility and brokenness. Thirdly, I, I, I think we should make diligent use of the means of grace. The Lord's Supper, communion, prayer, studying the scriptures. I pray that these three things would grow in our congregation. And one last point is we, before we move on to the latter half of this passage. If this is all true and these types of false teachers exist, why are churches always so tempted to hire and ordain people who really shouldn't be pastors? Why is this a temptation? I believe it is to humble us. To make us realize that without love, the best preacher is a clanging gong. Sometimes to humble his people, God gives the most extraordinary gifts to somebody who isn't even saved. To teach us to earnestly desire the higher gifts, which are the fruits of the Spirit. The common things that Christians live out day by day by loving one another. And we're going to see all of this later in the person of Balaam. So first we saw that these teachers are spiritually blind. But now we see that they're also morally corrupt in verses 14 through 16. Read along with me. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Such spiritual ineptitude will lead to moral failure as well. I I think many people often passively think that what I believe doesn't really affect what I do, and that's just not true. For all of us, it's true that what we believe, what we hold as our highest pleasure, will affect the way that we live. And we're going to see all of this is summed up perfectly by Peter in the story of the prophet Balaam. If you recall from Numbers chapter 22, we've covered this in our Sunday schools recently. But the Israelites had just left Egypt. They had just left the land of their bondage and were wandering in the wilderness, waiting for 40 years to enter the promised land. And they were defeating several kings along the way. They were a pretty dangerous army with the power of the Lord. And so one king named Balak, he saw that all of these other kings were being destroyed by the army of Israel. And he was fearful. He says he was terrified. And so what he did is he reached out to the local prophet, the local guy named Balaam. And this is what he wanted to do. He wanted Balaam to come upon a mountaintop, see the people of Israel, and curse them. Because he was so well known that those whom he cursed actually were cursed. So this guy was, had a lot of power. But here's the interesting thing. Balak, this king, sent envoys to Balaam saying, please, I'll, I'll pay you anything. Come and curse these people. And Balaam inquired of the Lord. So somehow he knew the Lord. He inquired of the Lord and the Lord said, they are blessed. You cannot curse them. Now a wise man would have just stopped right there. And Balaam, it seems like he kind of tried, and yet he didn't. This king offered more and more wealth, and eventually, enticed by the pleasures of riches, Balaam went. Balaam went to attempt to curse the uncursable people. And you all know the story well. It's one of the most hysterical episodes in the Bible. As Balaam is going, three times the angel of the Lord stands in his way, and the supposed man who could see clearly into the things of God was blind. And who was the one that saw? His donkey. The irony is palpable. Like It happens three times. It's hysterical. And then, to make matters worse, after the third time, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey talks to Balaam, and then Balaam talks back like nothing weird is happening. Like You're like, what's going on? This guy's crazy. So Balaam's wrong theology, his error in spiritual things, led inevitably to a deviancy in his morality as well. Those two are not separate. This first phrase, Peter says, they, false teachers, have eyes full of adultery. Such people are often overcome and riddled with lust, which they they try so hard to suppress. It sounds a lot like Jesus' words, once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. In his heart. So for these people, inward lust for sex runs rampant. There is no fight. There is no struggle. There is simply the evil thought of, how can I get what I want? And do what needs to be done to be satisfied. For such men, every woman is only a sexual option. And, And friends, these people exist. I don't know how many stories you've heard of sexual abuse happening in churches, but it happens by people who supposedly are Christians as well. 
we must, we must be wary and protect those near to us by examining not just what somebody says, but who they are. These people are insatiable, Peter says, and they seek to entice weak and unsteady souls. They go after those that they think they can entrap more easily. These people exist and God promises, that, promises us that they'll come. Friends, this isn't easy to talk about. But I think it's the burden of the Lord that we should learn of it. It says that they have hearts trained in greed. This, this word trained is where we get our word gymnasium. So it literally is saying that these people have practiced and know exactly what to do to get your money. That's their one goal. 1 Timothy chapter 6 has something to say about the struggle of greed with teachers. 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 through 10. Paul says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means for gain. That's what Balaam thought. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And this is the verse that everyone knows. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Yes, these words apply to all of us. Yes, these words should check all of our greed. But primarily, Peter is talking about pastors and teachers. That their lives should be a living example that our inheritance lies beyond this life. And it says that these teachers have forsaken the right way of Christ and have gone the way of Balaam instead. As I was researching for the sermon, I found this one quote from a Ligonier Ministries article that says this. Remember to take into account the motivations of your teachers as well as the words they speak. So we'll see that everything that we've read here about false teachers is perfectly summed up in the person and character of Balaam. He had amazing gifts. This man could prophesy. This man was powerful. And yet he didn't love the Lord. So let us be wary of assessing teachers simply by how well they speak. And simply by how many people they attract. Secondly, Balaam was spiritually ignorant. And he did not perceive God or his displeasure. Sure, he, he spoke true things, right? What's the saying? A, a, a dead clock shows the right time twice a day. But the heart of his folly was unbelief towards God. Thirdly, Balaam was sexually immoral. Later in the book of Numbers, we learned that when his cursings didn't work out against the people of Israel, when talking to the king of Moab, he told them to, him to send prostitutes into the camp of Israel to lead the people astray. So in his mind, any kind of wickedness he could use to gain money, he would do. He was also motivated by greed. Money was his goal. And Peter tells us that he loved to gain from wrongdoing rather than loving 
the pleasure of the Lord. And lastly, and this, this is beautiful, though Balaam in all his wickedness, he was used by God. Contrary to his desires and his purposes, God turns Balaam's curse into a blessing for his people. And even one of his last oracles, he says this, he says, a star shall come out of Jacob. And a lot of people think this is what guided the wise men to Israel, to worship the babe of Christ. So Balaam was a wicked, he caused the demise of many Israelites, but God turned the curse into a blessing for his people. This is what he did a long time ago. This is what he did on the cross. He turned the curse into a blessing for his people, and he promises that he will do it for false teachers as well. This week, I racked my brain with one question. One question was constantly on my mind of, why do we have false teachers? Like, why is this something that the church struggles with? Why? Like you, you read a lot of things that explain who they are, but I was troubled with the question of why. Thankfully, I found one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, which zooms out and gives us God's perspective on false teaching and the church, where Paul says this. He says, For there must be factions or heresies or disagreements among you why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So why does the church struggle with false teachers? Because God uses that to bring his faithful believers home. It's the same with the cross. God turned an unimaginable evil into a blessing for his people. We've had a lot here, but I'll, I'm going, we're going to close today with the following couple verses back in Ezekiel chapter 34, where the Lord is speaking against the false shepherds of Israel. May this be a comfort to us all. Starting in 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. What a blessing. No matter how evil the false teachers may be or how troubled Christ's church is, his message to us is, I am your good shepherd. For all of their failures, Christ is blameless. For all of their lack, Christ has abundance. So as we see the evils in this world, let us not simply focus just on them. But I pray that they may guide our minds to the higher, beautiful truth that Christ is our good shepherd. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that texts and passages like this are not as joyful as we would often wish. And these times in church are often not as happy 
as we would imagine, and yet help teach us to find joy even in the most somber moment of the scriptures. For Lord, they, these words would not be here if we did not need them. So Lord, as I just spoke, I pray that you would guide all of our hearts. When we see evil in this world, especially in the pulpit, especially from those who should be shepherds, remind our souls that truly you are our good shepherds, our good shepherd. Help us to cling to Christ. And I pray this all in his name.